during our family devotionals, there is now a portion of time devoted to Q&As, questions and answers with little Thea. She's about three and a half years old, and so now part of the devotional time as we go through books of the Bible together, there will be, usually at the beginning, questions for her and then answers from her, but sometimes she mixes it up and sometimes she asks me the questions and then I have to give her the answers. I think it's part of her way of remembering the things that we are teaching her. So some of the questions involve um, things of this nature. Who made you? God. Why did he make you? For his glory. What else did God make? All things. And then will come the question, why did God make you in all things? For his glory. How do you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. See, questions of, of this nature. And we talk about, can God do all things? Yes, God can do all things according to his good and perfect will. Can God lie? No, God cannot lie. So we'll go through these things together, and we've made our way into the beginning of creation story, the beginning of the creation story, particularly the creation of Adam and Eve. So I'll ask the, I'll say, who is the first man that God made? And she'll say, ah, ah, Adam. She's practicing phonics, apparently, <laughs> along the way, and says, ah, ah, Adam. And then I'll say, how did God make Adam? And then she'll go from the dirt. And then I'll say, what did God do? And I usually got to kind of lead into this. I'll say, what did God do? And I say, he took the dirt and he made it into the form of a man. And then he, and then she'll say, breathe. Yes, and I'll say, breathe into his nostrils the very breath of life. And man became a living being. Then I'll ask her, who is the first woman that God made? Eve. She recently started doing the kind of phonics thing with Eve, too. Now it's E, E, Eve. And I'll say, how did God make Eve? From a rib. And she'll ask, did it hurt? And I'll say, no, no, no. When God performed this surgery, if you will, I'm, I, I'm confident there was no pain. God put Adam asleep, and then from a rib, he, he built a woman. So we had been going through that, and you could see a sense of wonder in her eyes as we're going through that. I mean, it is awesome to think God taking dirt and then breathing into dirt, and all of a sudden the optic nerves are forming, a heart is beating, all these things are happening by the power of the very breath of God. God taking a rib and then building a woman from a rib. Take a rib next time that you eat a rib and eat from a rib and then see what you could do with it. You can't do what God did with it. And so she has this sense of awe, and I was anticipating something different happening when we got to Genesis chapter 3. Because when I went into Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden it's like you could see the storm clouds gathering in the text of Scripture as you read it, right? All of a sudden there's a different feel. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And I was wondering if there would be a sense of the kind of shock that the reader, the first readers of Genesis might have when they see the beautiful scenario that God put man in, the perfect creation that he made, and then all of a sudden, the sin that was committed. And sure enough, it did happen. It did happen. Her face, uh, that cute little face, had a kind of sense of saddened surprise. She would ask me, like, that's bad. Is that bad? That's bad. Because it's a kind of a shock. And the reason why it would be a shock, and it should be a shock to all of us, is because when you look through Genesis 1 and 2, you don't have to look hard for evidence of God's benevolence. It's not like those like, Where, Where's Waldo books from like, when I was a kid, and you had to look through the pages to find where Waldo was. No, no, no. The evidence of God's grace was all around Adam and Eve. God so graciously made a woman for Adam, brought her to him. They lived in a perfect world without sin. They had, to, they had the option of eating from any tree in the garden except one. It was beautiful. It was amazing. 
examples, tokens of grace all around them. But despite that, they sinned. They sinned against God and through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And what I find so interesting about Genesis chapter 3, and if you know the scriptures, what I find to be so like God is that soon after the fall, you might say right there in the midst of the beginning of the fallout from the fall, the tokens of God's grace are so evident and God invades that situation with, if you will, the first promise of Christmas. Because that's just so like God. The first announcement of the gospel comes right here in the fallout of the fall. I know, I know it's in acorn form, but it's going to grow as more prophecies are added. We'll find that this one would be from the line of Abraham, that he would be from the line of Judah, that he would be a king, that he would be from the line of David, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We'll find out more. The acorn will grow into a big oak tree, but nonetheless, the acorn is here. And there's a lot for us to see in this promise of the gospel that comes in the midst of the fallout of the fall. And the fact that God gave this announcement when he did, shining the light of hope in the midst of despair, assuring Satan's defeat after what likely felt for him to be a huge victory, God proclaiming grace in the midst of the fallout of rebellion, laying the foundation for joy to the world, even as the curse to the serpent is declared, ought to be a reminder That however thick the clouds might feel for you this Christmas, the wind of God's spirit can move them and the light of God's truth can pierce them. And I pray that will happen for you this day. We'll make our way to Genesis 3.15, but first I want to consider with you many tokens of grace amidst the fallout. Because the evidence of God's grace is not just found in Genesis 3.15, it is strewn throughout this account. To give you a little bit more of the context here again, despite the goodness of God, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The one called Satan and the devil, to use language from Revelation 12, 9, that serpent of old, he deceived Eve. He questioned God's word. Has God indeed said, Genesis 3, 1. He lied about God's word. You shall not surely die. He insinuated that God was holding back from them, that God couldn't be trusted, that God's word couldn't be trusted, God's character couldn't be entrusted, and Eve apparently bought into the insinuations. She doubted the word of God. She took the serpent's interpretations as valid, and then she ate the fruit. She desired it. She ate it. She was deceived. And as we're told in the text, she took the fruit and she offered it to her husband and he sinned with eyes wide open. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that the woman was deceived, but the man was not. So Adam sinned with eyes wide open and apparently they disbelieved God's word. They at some level doubted God's character and that was at the heart of their disobedience. That's why many people have called this chapter of Scripture the saddest chapter in all of the Bible. But if you just think of Genesis 3 as the saddest chapter in all the Bible, you are missing all of the grace amidst the fallout. 
I want to start showing you some of that. First, I want to make a simple point. The fall happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And the fact that there is a Genesis 3, verse 7 and beyond is grace. <laughs> it could have ended at that point. Right? Maybe there would have been a Genesis 3, 7 that would read something like this. After this, God destroyed humanity and the created order that had been tainted by sin. And you might say, well, who would read it? If you wrote that and after it, like, who would, be, who would read it? Well, you say there's angelic beings that were preserved from sin, and they would be ones who maybe could see that. But I want to remind you that the fall happens in Genesis 6, and the fact that there's a Genesis 3, 7 and beyond is evidence of grace. After Genesis 3, 6, there is the rest of Genesis. And after that, there's 65 other books of the Bible to be written and close to 6,000 years and counting. So the first thing I want you to see is that God's patience, among other things, is demonstrated in man's continuing existence. Second, there's the grace of God's pursuit amidst the fallout. God is the one who takes the initiative to pursue Adam and Eve. Right? When God's voice is heard in the garden, Adam doesn't come running. Adam goes hiding. He's running from the voice of God. We would imagine prior to this that when God spoke at previous moments, Adam would go or Adam would listen. Adam would hear. In this moment, Adam is hiding. Adam is running. He's hiding himself with Eve from God's presence. And I just want to remind you, that's what sin will do. Sin will lead us to want to be away from God, the things of God, the people of God. Sin will lead to shame. Sin will, want to, uh, sin will lead us to want to be away from the people of God and so on. It will provoke the desire to distance ourselves from God and the things of God. And think of the sad irony of this. They likely anticipated some measure of euphoria. Maybe the serpent is right. What will happen when we eat of that fruit? The one fruit that God told us not to eat. Doubtless he's holding back. What is going to be on the other side of this bite? Probably expected euphoria. And what they got was death. And shame. And the fallout of sin was great. Please just be reminded of that. Be reminded of that, that on the other side of that bite that looks so enticing, that pleasure that looks so, so, so satisfying and so on, on the other side of that sin, there's always going to be pain and shame. It may not be immediate. It may be a little bit more downstream, but that's what sin does. And this is a good reminder for us of that. But this is what I want you to see. Sin leads to shame. It leads to them being separated from God. They want to hide themselves from God. And what does God do? You're already seeing in the midst of the fall. The fall just happened. The fallout is here. And God is the one taking initiative. God is the one who says to Adam, where are you? Not because he doesn't know. The understanding of the Lord is infinite. He knows all things and so many scriptures witness to that. But he's pursuing Adam. The previous dynamic of the relationship, however you define it, it just wasn't there anymore. Now it was different. Man's hiding. And God is the one taking initiative to seek and bring about restoration to something even better. Quick theological aside. Quick theological aside. Doctrines of grace moment right here. This is what I would find so interesting about a view of mankind in and of himself being able to choose salvation, and then hang on to God through the entirety of their lives. This is what I find so strange about this. 
because an unfallen man without a sin nature, outside of a world system, and there's no existence of a fallen world system at this point, rather he's in a beautiful garden and he still chooses iniquity. And then after he chooses iniquity, he runs from God. He hides from God. God is the one who goes after him. And so I just want to remind us, what chance do we have in our fallen frames when we have a fallen frame that's been tainted by sin, when we love darkness rather than light, when we live within a world system, when we have an adversary to deal with? What makes us think that in and of ourselves, we can hold on to the grace of God, clutch it initially, or hold on to it continually? It must be of God's grace. And I think we even get inklings of that right here. In the midst of the fallout, God is the one who takes the initiative. Grace. Then there's the grace of communication. There's the grace of communication. Adam and Eve aren't running to God saying, what happened? We feel different. Something's different now. They're not running to God, but God's going to them. And God asks them both questions. I want you to notice, too, the serpent isn't asked a question. For the serpent, simply a curse is declared. But Adam and Eve get questions from God. I think it's part of God's gracious pursuit. And notice what the questions do. They drew out, as it were, for Adam and Eve, the connection between what hiding they were doing, the hiding that they were doing, and the sin that they committed. Right? God asked Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then you look in this text, and one of the interesting things you find is that through God's questioning, both Adam and Eve say the words, and I ate. God's questioning to them brought about an acknowledgement of what they did. Now granted, they're not saying, we're so sorry for what we did. We can't believe that we did it. You have been so great and so kind and you did nothing but good to us and we've sinned against you. They didn't say that. But they did say that they ate. They acknowledged that they had done that. One other aside that I think it's uh, helpful for you to know, if you are um, displeased by the culture of victimhood that exists in our society and in other societies, where rather than take personal responsibility for one's actions, some cast blame on another person or group or profession or ethnicity, I want to remind you where the culture of victimhood began. It began right here in the fall. Like right after the fall, God's coming to Adam and Eve, right? And what are they doing? They're blame shifting, right? Adam, in a scary way here, is blaming God and Eve, right? It's the woman that you gave me. I ate, but you know who gave me the fruit? The woman you gave me. Not taking responsibility, at least in that sense, in that sense there. He'll acknowledge that he ate, but there's blame shifting. And then when God speaks to Eve, what does she do? She says, the serpent deceived me. You might say that right here, we are reminded that it's easier to blame someone else than to say, I'm sorry, or I'm wrong. Maybe a great gift you could give someone this Christmas is just saying, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Blame isn't the right way to deal with guilt. I think, too, one of the things I was thinking here was that uh, I think for parents, this is a great opportunity for you to model owning responsibility before the eyes of your children. 
I think let, let them see that. Let them, let them see that it's okay to apologize. It's okay to say, I bear responsibility for this. Let them see that. They see you do that. They see you modeling that. It will be, by God's grace, easier for them to do that. You show them that blame shifting is not the way. You don't feign innocence. You, where it's right and appropriate, you take responsibility and you say, I'm sorry. But again, evidence of grace here. God is communicating. So the fact that there's a Genesis 3-7 and beyond... The fact that God's pursuing, the fact that God's communicating, all of these are tokens of grace amidst the fallout, and there's more. We're going to go past Genesis 3.15 for a moment. I'm going to take you to Genesis 3.21. In Genesis 3.21, we're told, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So what Adam and Eve did for themselves was inadequate, right? They sewed fig leaves together. Their nakedness was not properly covered. It's emblematic, is it not, of us trying to cover the shame of our sinfulness by our own works. It's like you're sewing fig leaves. You can't cover yourself with that. You need a covering. And who's the one who provides the covering? More grace amidst the fallout. God slays an animal. What was that like for Adam and Eve? They never saw anything like that before. God slays an animal and he takes the skin of the animal and what he does is he covers them. All of a sudden in this moment, they're learning a little bit about substitutionary atonement. They know they could have, some might say should have, physically died in that moment, though death began and they were spiritually separated from God and so on. But all of a sudden this animal dies so that they could be covered. And what you have here is the gospel being foreshadowed. That for sin to be covered, it's going to take the sacrifice of another. Blood is going to have to be shed. And God is the one who initiates it. God doesn't give them a recipe to follow at this moment. God is the one who does it. He does it. He covers them. Grace, gospel typified and foreshadowed right here. This is what God would do with us in the gospel. We would become covered with the garments of salvation, to use language from Isaiah. Through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death in our place, we would be covered with the garments of righteousness. Grace. Grace. Interestingly, what might have preceded this, by the way, might have been to some degree a statement of faith from Adam. Genesis 3.20 is where Eve gets the name Eve. Like, wait a minute, I thought she always was Eve. Well, remember that when God had formed her and then brought her to Adam, Adam said, she shall be called woman, or in Hebrew, Isha, for she was made out of man, Ish. So she was woman. And at this point in time, after God gives this amazing promise that we're going to study in Genesis 3.15, now she has a name change. Her husband calls her Eve, which means life or living. And there may be quite a bit of significance there. It may be the way in which Adam is saying what God just said to her in Genesis 3.15 is true. And we're going to kind of symbolize that, have that symbolized in Eve's name change. Now, there's more grace that can be seen. That's not even all the grace that you could see in Genesis chapter 3. But do you see the grace? 
I want you to feel like today that you have these instances presented before you as though they were gifts of God's grace in the scriptures and that you leave here with so many gifts of God's grace that you feel as though you can't even fit them in the car. They're too big. They're too many. It's in the midst of the fallout. And God is showing how gracious he is. I think one of the best gifts you could have this Christmas is to see the greatness of God's grace a little bit more than you did before you came in. And I think that will spur worship. That will spur obedience. That will spur a desire for holiness. That will spur love for God, love for the brethren, because you say, he is great and his grace is so great. Well, there's more grace that can be seen, but I want us to come to the um, declaration, this curse that comes to the serpent in Genesis 3.14. I'll make some comments on that briefly, and then we will make our way to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.14, we read, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are more cursed, cursed more than all cattle and more than any beast of the field, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now there are typically two trains of interpretive thought that follow Genesis 3.14. Now some would say that what you have going on here is simply metaphorical, and it's representative of the humiliation and the way in which Satan was brought low. He was cast out of heaven via the fall, and now the way in which he is brought low is even more demonstrated through the depiction of the serpent slithering on the ground. And you see that here. Uh, One way or another, I think that's part of what's going on. When you look at the language that's used here, um, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, The language that's used here is, I think, representative of a kind of subjugation. It is representative of a humiliation. It is representative of a degradation of the enemy. I think it is representative of that. You go in the scriptures, Psalm 72, verse 9, which speaks of the righteous king. It says, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. So when the Lord says here, via this pronouncement of the curse, that the serpent is going to eat dust, it doesn't mean that's going to be his literal diet. The idea is you are slithering on the ground, and by virtue of that, as a consequence of that, you are going to be eating dust. But again, you look through the scriptures, it's connected with humiliation. It's it's connected with subjugation. In Isaiah 49, verse 23, We're told kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. So I think what we have going on here is a curse being declared very clearly. And I think it is immediately applicable to the enemy. We're going to see that he is that ancient serpent of old. Now, where the divide comes between some uh, conservative commentators on both both sides is whether or not an actual serpent was involved. So you got people on different sides of that. Now, one possibility is that Satan took the form of a serpent via him being a spiritual being, and then somehow he's animating this serpent, and then through this serpent, he is tempting and enticing Adam and Eve. 
within the context of the scriptures, I think that makes the most sense while not throwing out the metaphoric language that's here. I think they're both, I think they're all applicable, literal and metaphoric at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. So I think that is what's happening. And one of the other things I want to say about this here is that when this pronouncement comes, you are cursed more than all the cattle, all the beasts of every field. On your belly you shall go. The snake becomes an ongoing symbol, an ongoing reminder of the fall, but also God's curse upon Satan. Every time you see a snake, it's as though you should be reminded that God who cast Lucifer out of heaven is the same God who said to the serpent the promise of Genesis 3.15 and declared through the symbol of a snake on the ground, slithering on the ground, you are a defeated enemy. It's as though God is declaring it. You are licking up the dust of the ground as it were. You are laid low. You might even say that's grace amidst the fallout. The beginning of this curse pronouncement is a declaration of grace. And part of the other argumentation for that view would be, you see in the scriptures times where God is speaking to an individual and beyond an individual. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, God speaking to the king of Babylon, but then he's speaking past the king of Babylon to the one who is animating him, as it were, Satan. Ezekiel 20, 28, God is speaking to the king of Tyre, and then he's speaking past the king of Tyre to the one who is influencing him, Satan. And that may be what's going on right here, speaking to the serpent, yet past the serpent. And then the serpent becomes a living reminder of Satan's degradation and humiliation and subjugation as a defeated foe before Almighty God. Well, how would that defeat come? That brings us to the first promise of Christmas. The first promise of Christmas. The Lord says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Genesis 3.15. I want you to see what you might not have seen here before. The grace of enmity. The grace of enmity. Satan had deceived Eve. And maybe Satan thought, I got her. I got Adam. Yes, now I have taken these creatures made in the image of God. They are mine. But yet God here announces that he's going to put. Notice who's putting the enmity. God is putting the enmity, and I'm going to argue it's a gracious enmity that Eve is not going to, as it were, cuddle up with the serpent and be an ongoing friend to the serpent. This is a work of God's grace, I would argue, that he's putting enmity between the serpent and Eve. She is not going to be in allegiance with him. She's not going to be in cahoots with him. All of a sudden now there's a divide that's happening. God is the one who is putting enmity. Why is that significant? I would argue because, again, it's grace. He could have just left her and then she could have been subjugated by him, deceived by him in an ongoing way. If she wasn't a match for him in an unfallen state, do you think she would be a match for him in a fallen state? So I want you to see here the grace of enmity. God is the one who puts it. And the implication appears to be God did not leave Eve to become Satan's servant. He put enmity between Satan and the woman. An enmity that is paralleled with the enmity that would exist between Satan and the Messiah. Because there will be enmity between her seed and his seed. So I think, behold, amidst the curse, the promise here 
of grace that God would put enmity between the woman and the serpent. I just want to remind you, the Christian knows about this grace. Instead of fellowship with darkness for the Christian, there is a holy hatred of darkness. Instead of friendship with the world, which is enmity with God, there is friendship with God and hostility from the world. Jesus told his disciples, for instance, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Why would the world love you as its own? Because the architect and the influencer behind the world system is Satan, the wicked one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the world is under the sway of the wicked one. So I want you to see this kind of enmity, and it has an element of grace to it. You're on the receiving end of enmity. You're not recognized by the world, as it were, in 1 John chapter 3. You're not seen to be a son or daughter of God. You're seen as an enemy to the world. There's hostility that you receive, and that's a grace. And it was a grace for Eve, lest she would cuddle up with the enemy and be an ongoing servant of his. Christians, again, know this. There were sinful things that you used to love, but now you hate those things. It's like those in Ephesus, right, who brought their books of divination to be burned. Used to practice this stuff. Used to love this stuff. And then they bring them to be burned like we don't want this stuff. We have a holy hatred towards this stuff. You know about this kind of enmity. You're on the receiving end of it from the world if you're a Christian. And you have a feeling of that kind towards the world system while you have compassion for those who are in it. Then the next line says, and between your seed and her seed. Now many people note here that there are two humanities that come. And I want to say, I want to make this point. I want to call attention to this, but I don't think that's where this is driving ultimately. So you're going to hear me make this point, which I think is an application, but I don't think it's the immediate sense of the text. You'll see why I say that in a moment. But many people talk about two humanities. Between your seed and between your seed talking to the serpent and her seed. It's a good reminder here that Satan has offspring as well, if you will. Now you see this play out in the book of Genesis. I mean, you just read on in Genesis chapter 4 and you start seeing the divide. You see Cain. And we know according to 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 that Cain was of the wicked one. You could say he was of the seed of of the serpent. And then you see from Cain's line, there's a guy like Lamech who comes, right? The polygamist and the murderer. So you got that line. But then you see the other line, Abel. And Abel dies and the Lord gives Eve another seed, Seth. And then in Seth's line, you'd have men like Noah and so on. So you might even see this kind of playing itself out. It is a collective noun, the word seed. Collective noun, you're familiar with that. A collective noun is, a, is like a word like sheep, for instance. Sheep can be singular. You can say, I have a sheep. Or you could say, I have many sheep. It's a collective noun. It could refer to something singular. It could refer to something plural. And maybe there's a both-end sense here. There's a both-end sense possibly because we know that is a reality. Remember Jesus told those uh, individuals, those Jewish antagonists in John chapter 8, verse 44, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
And we do know that in this world, there will be enmity between those who are the children of God and those who are in league with the devil. Those who are of the world and those who are not of the world. It's been that way. You go through the scriptures. It's, it's shown to be that way. It will continue to be that way. We know that you could say that there are two humanities. But I want you to see what's ultimately pointed to here. I like how in the translation we see the seed um, second reference to it capitalized. And the reason why it's capitalized is because if you go into the next line, there's the singular pronoun he. He shall bruise your head. It's kind of analogous to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, when God was talking about the seed of Abraham, and then Paul was referencing how that seed is singular, speaking of one who would come, namely Christ. That appears to be the ultimate idea here. That it was going to be through this seed that would come, he would bruise the head of the serpent. Bruise the head of the serpent. So the woman would not only be protected by enmity, she would also become the pipeline of victory. Through her would come this one. And notice the language. It's the language of Christmas, if you will. The seed of the woman. That's not language that you see in the scriptures. Usually you think of the seed of a man. Genealogies run through a man. So you usually think of the seed coming from a man. But there's something unique about this promise here. And I would argue this promise is speaking of the virgin birth. That Jesus, when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, there would not need to be the seed of a man, but rather by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So you have in more ways than one, if you will, the first promise of Christmas right here in Genesis 3:15. And this one who would come, he would be the serpent crusher. And I want you to see this here. They have just been deceived. They've been plunged into sin. And what is their hope? Their hope is not something they have to do. The hope is the one who is going to come. It's not going to be that they're going to defeat the serpent. They have to wait for this one, the seed of the woman who is going to come. The one who's going to come by virgin birth. He's the one who is going to be the head crusher. He's the one who's going to lay the death blow to the serpent. He's the one who is going to bruise his head. He's the one who is going to smash him, as it were. He's the one who is going to bring the victory. He's the one. And what do we know about this one? He's going to be man. It's not going to be an angel. He's going to be the seed of a woman. Oh, it's going to become clear as time goes on that he would be truly man and truly God. And some even argue that was part of the expectation for Adam and Eve, as you go on in the book of Genesis, that the one who would come would be both truly man and truly God. So you see this one who would be the seed of the woman, unique, not coming through a male, but coming through a woman. And think of this. It was through a woman that Satan deceived that he brought the temptation to Adam and then plunged the world into sin through Adam's sin. But now it was going to be through a woman that the head crusher was going to come. Think of the irony in that. Whatever feelings, and I don't know, this is just you know, me just imagining the possibility, whatever feeling of victory that Satan might have felt as though he had, it's as though God invaded that in this moment with the curse and the promise 
that you are a defeated foe. A snake slithering on the ground is going to be emblematic of that. And one day the seed of the woman will come and he will lay the death blow. You know, just imagine, right, a snake, and all of a sudden if a snake is on the ground, you don't try to kill the snake by stepping on its tail. You don't try to kill the snake by stepping in the middle of it. If you wanted to kill the snake, what would you do? You have to go for the head, and you lay a death blow to the serpent's head. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He laid the death blow. He disarmed powers and principalities. He was manifested to destroy the works of the enemy. He, through death, destroyed him who had the power over death. That is the devil, Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So through the cross, Jesus lays the death blow. And now we are waiting as the church to use language from Romans 16, 20 for the consummation of that. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under the feet of the people of God. So even the people of God get to participate in the ultimate victory of the Son of God. And we know that moment is coming when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And the death blow that was laid will lead to the consummation of his defeat with his removal and him being placed in the lake of fire. But I want you to see here also in this first promise of Christmas, if you will, that this victory that the seed of the woman would have would not be without cost. It would be costly. He would bruise, crush Satan's head. But his heel would be bruised in the process. He would suffer. He himself would be wounded. And we know that took place on the cross. It wasn't, if you will, an ultimately fatal wound in the most ultimate sense because Jesus died. And then Jesus what? Rose. He rose again. So while the defeat of Satan is going to culminate with his ultimate ongoing eternal death and punishment in the lake of fire, Jesus suffers death on our behalf. His heel is bruised. He suffers to the point of death, even death on the cross. But he is raised again to life. And we're reminded in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of Christmas, that our Savior is going to suffer. He is going to save humanity, the believing humanity, the sons and daughters of the living God appointed unto salvation through his death. Through his suffering, he would secure victory and crush the head of the serpent, but he himself would suffer in the process. What declarations of grace. Declarations of grace. As I was thinking of how to close today's message and just seeing all of these declarations of grace, I thought this might be a way to go about it. We see, if you will, the venom of the serpent being injected into humanity. We know that he had sinned and rebelled against God. And then he leads Adam and Eve to sin. So if you will, you might say that the venom of the serpent, as it were, has been injected into humanity, as it were. Well, how do you get rid of that? How do you get rid of that? Think of Numbers chapter 21. You might remember in Numbers chapter 21 that uh, Israel in the wilderness did what Israel in the wilderness often did. They complained against God, and they complained against Moses. And on that occasion, we read that God sent fiery serpents among the children of Israel. They had been grumbling. You listen to one of the messages I did in Jude. I walk you through so many instances of them grumbling despite what God did. Isn't that a sad marker of fallen humanity? 
That despite all the tokens of grace that we can grumble, we can complain, we can do those things. Well, they were doing those things and they did those things a lot. And God sent fiery serpents among them. They bit the people and many died. We see that in Numbers 21, verse 6. But then they sought Moses to pray. The people acknowledged their sin. We're like, okay, we get it. We've sinned. And then they ask Moses to pray. And Moses does pray for the people. Numbers 21, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. A serpent, the idea there is a serpent whose bite will cause uh, pain, inflammation. That's the idea there. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks on it, shall live. Now think of that. Interesting, right? It's this bronze serpent. He's going to lift it up before the Israelites and they're going to get better by simply looking upon the object that God told them to look upon. And they would do that and they would be made well. Well, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So how do you receive the promise of Christmas? You receive it by the grace of God. You say, no, there is one who is coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He has come. His name is Jesus. He is Lord and Savior. He died in my place. He rose from the grave. You don't try to receive the promise of Christmas by your own works. You look upon him who is lifted up upon the cross. And you trust him, and by the grace of God, you are forgiven of your sin. You are freed from the penalty of sin. You are freed from the power of sin. And one day, you will be removed from the very presence of sin. All of the venom in every way it could affect you, gone. Thanks be to God. For the great promise of the gospel. Amidst the fallout. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for helping us set our eyes upon you on this day. That we can marvel at your grace and the tokens of it. So uh, mightily levied throughout Genesis chapter 3. Thank you, Father. We pray that you would help us in light of seeing your grace. In light of seeing the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent at the expense of himself, suffering in our place, we pray that you will fan the flames of worship and excitement and fidelity and obedience, Lord. Oh, may your people be filled with fresh measures of joy in Christ and hope in light of what you have done. We praise you. For as it were, the first promise of Christmas, the first announcement of the gospel, a gospel planned before the foundation of the world, and yet here at first revealed in time amidst the fall of the fallout, the fallout of the fall. We praise you. You are great. And we thank you for our champion. We say together, Father, it would be my prayer that everybody in this room would have confidence not in themselves, that they wouldn't look to themselves for forgiveness or healing, but they would say, I look to the one who was lifted up on the cross. I look for the one who became sin and who bore my sin on the cross so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. May they look to your son, Father, by your grace in faith, 
and receive the forgiveness of sins if it hasn't happened already. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.